Welcome to Every Texan Talks, the legislative update hosted by Every Texan, where our policy experts and political insiders cut through the noise at the Texas legislative session, break down what's happening at the Capitol, and why Texans should care. Hello and welcome. I'm Muddy Sabono, CEO at Every Texan, and today we're talking state of the state. Last night, Governor Abbott delivered an in-person state of the state since the first time before the pandemic. He laid out his legislative priorities for the session this year, and he lauded Texas as America's undisputed economic leader with our $2 trillion economy, now the ninth largest in the world. He insisted that we're providing pathways to prosperity for all Texans and touted our number one rankings in economic development and also job growth in the state. But are everyday Texans really sharing in the prosperity that they're contributing to? I'm very excited today because we have a panel of exceptional leaders from across the state of Texas, from the Valley to Austin, joining us today to offer their response and thoughts to the governor's state of the state last night. So happy to welcome Brianna Brown, the co-executive director of the Texas Organizing Project, the largest grassroots community-based organization in the state. Rochelle Garza, the new executive director of the Texas Civil Rights Project, a statewide team of lawyers and advocates fighting for equality for Texans in our court system. Dr. Chloe Latham Sykes, the deputy director of policy at IDRA, a national nonprofit focused on equal educational opportunity for every child, through strong public schools, and Dick Levine, senior fiscal analyst and Texas icon from every Texan. Welcome, everybody. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So we, we heard a glowing report from the governor last night about the state of our state, but I'm hoping we can use our conversation today to focus on the state of Texans, the state of the people. And Rochelle, I'd like to start with you. Congratulations on your new role at the Texas Civil Rights Project, by the way. Thank you, I'm very excited. Well, we are too. Um, you're, you're now the first person of color to lead the organization, right? Uh, that's correct. Uh, and also, I am the former Democratic nominee for Texas Attorney General. I was the first Latina ever nominated to that position. So breaking barriers all around. Yes, we, and we love to hear it. What a coup for the Texas Civil Rights Project. We're definitely looking forward to working with you. So for folks who are hearing about TCRP for the first time, can you just start by telling us a little bit about your organization and its mission? Yeah, so the Texas Civil Rights Project or TTRP is a nonprofit organization that has been around since 1990. We got our start in South Texas and today we have a strong presence across the state, but particularly in Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston and the Rio Grande Valley. We use a community lawyering model. That means we partner with communities and grassroots organizations. And we use the tools of litigation and legal advocacy to protect and advance civil rights for everyone in Texas. And, and we do that through our programmatic work uh, beyond borders, which in includes immigration work, as well as the criminal injustice program and protecting the right to vote. Uh, you know, last night, Governor Abbott referenced public safety issues as a reason to not only continue but expand Operation Lone Star, a border security program that he started in 2021. 
Uh, you're joining us on Zoom today, but you're you're joining us from Brownsville, where you live with your family. And I know before joining TCRP and before your campaign, you were a civil rights lawyer and were working and living in the Valley for, for many years. Um, what are your thoughts on the governor's characterization of what's happening at the border? Well, I'm, I'm a proud border native. Uh, my family has been in the Rio Grande Valley for five generations. And my husband and I are very much intentionally raising our 10-month-old daughter here because our communities are vibrant, they're welcoming, and they're incredibly safe. The vision that, that we've seen laid out of, of what the valley looks like, what our borderlands look like, is very bleak. And that is just not the reality on the ground. Uh, we do have a humanitarian crisis. There are uh, individuals presenting themselves along the border seeking protection and asylum. It's mostly families with, with women and children uh, that are fleeing very desperate situations. And we have a lot of individuals in our communities that are, that are coming together to provide humanitarian aid. Uh, that is not something that is being supported by our federal or state governments. Um, so what we're seeing is the border is continuously being used as a political talking point to divide folks. And to divide neighbor against neighbor, to divide communities across the state. Uh, definitely heard about, um, I'm sure, um, concerns that are valid in some part and uh, about fentanyl and other drugs being brought across the border. Um, but the, the other side of that is the fact that folks are presenting themselves willingly. They're coming here um, to, seek, um, to seek asylum through, um, through our system. And that's sort of a whole nother part of the picture that wasn't necessarily presented last night. That's right. So it, the base budget this year during session recommends an additional $5 billion in spending on Operation Lone Star. How does the, that particular program impact the community in South Texas? You know, it, spending money to further militarize the border is, is not, um, it's not good for the community itself and it's not gonna address the humanitarian uh, issue that we are seeing. Um, OLS has, is not only unconstitutional, it, it, it's essentially a, um, a state scheme trying to enforce federal law. We know that's unconstitutional, but it has been a huge waste of dollars and it's militarized the communities in South Texas and has really sowed a lot of fear in folks. And we're seeing, you know, very, uh, very clear harms. You know, for example, we've heard from community members in Brackettville that DPS pursuits typically end in high-speed chases. And it happens so often that the local elementary school was forced to put up large boulders to protect students wow. while attending class. Wow. Uh, these, are, these are the negative impacts on, on the communities along the border. Um, Kinney County has seen um, a huge rise in ticketing that amounts to about $2 million. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so we're seeing these these negative impacts, and it's only further militarizing and villainizing border communities. Yeah, really, really interesting because there was such a big emphasis on public safety in the address last night, and um, it's such a juxtaposition to hear those stories um, in relation to this to this project. Is is there any data showing that Operation Lone Star is actually deterring unlawful crossings? I mean, we've been we've been seeing an increase of, of folks presenting themselves uh, seeking asylum. Uh, look, 
you know, we're not actually addressing the root causes of the issues of why folks are fleeing their home countries in the first place. They're fleeing because their governments are unstable, their families are unsafe, and there's an illicit drug trade that is that is creating a lot of violence in these home countries. So folks are going to still come north until we stabilize Latin America, until we stabilize these countries and address also the opioid epidemic that we have here in the United States uh, and the demand for, for illicit drugs. So we need to take care of the root causes of these issues. And it's not, it is not being propelled. We are not addressing these issues unless we address those things. And it's, it's time we stop blaming border communities. It's time that we stop blaming immigrants that are just seeking refuge. Uh, and stop blaming those who are, um, in many cases, trying to live their faith by helping people who are in humanitarian crisis. Um, you mentioned the cost of the program. Uh, as of last summer, Operation Lone Star was costing Texas taxpayers about $20 million a week with very little oversight or accounting of how that money is being spent. So just wanted to provide that context for our fiscal conservatives out there. Uh, the program has also diverted money without legislative approval from other state services, including uh, services supporting public safety. So speaking of misplaced priorities, one place where the base budget does not recommend funding increases is public education. And we happen to have a public education expert with us today, Dr. Chloe Latham Sykes from IDRA. Um, Chloe, can you tell us a little, a little bit about IDRA's work? <clears throat> yes, thank you, Marisa, um, and thanks for having me. IDRA now for 50 years. We're celebrating our 50th birthday this year, coming up April 1st. Um, we are an educational nonprofit organization, and we work across educational policy, uh, practice, meaning direct equity and technical assistance with school districts and state agencies, uh, strategic communications, and engaged in communities, in communities with students in public schools to ensure that all students have access to strong public schools that prepare them to access and succeed in college and in post-secondary life. We do, uh, I think unique to our educational work, we approach it through a very strong civil rights lens and with an explicit focus on racial equity and advancing that in educational policy. Uh, we work nationally, our home state is Texas, we're based in San Antonio, um, our home state is Texas, but we do work across the US South, including um, uh, growing presence in the Georgia legislature and in Georgia education policy and on the national stage in DC as well. Thank you for that. So I, I know uh, IDRA is a well-established leader in educational opportunity. The organization's been around for decades. Um, but Chloe, I know you've been working, you personally have been working in both K-12 and higher education settings, also uh, across a number of different educational research and advocacy organizations. And uh, you currently focus on IDRA's state policy priorities for advancing equity in public education including school finance. And uh, so I'm uh, very pleased to have your insights um, today. Governor Abbott reported on a strong state of education in Texas last night. He emphasized that we have one of the best high school graduation rates in the country. Uh, some other kind of fun facts, we're number one for National Blue Ribbon Schools. Um, our, our research capacity in our universities does, does the data support the governor's framing of Texas as the knowledge capital of America? 
That's an excellent question. And this is a question that's always in tension, I think, in the political conversations. One of the reasons I love education policy is because it touches really all facets of people's lives and, and families. Uh, just education is so broad and encompasses so many things. So Texas does have a strong public education system and we serve over five and a half million students, um, which is massive. Um, it's about 10% of public school students in the country are Texas public school students. Um, so we have, uh, of course, you know, a huge responsibility to our students, to our future, um, to our children. Um, the data, though, that is cited and, and sometimes touted doesn't always line up because we have a long way to go, I think, to advance really the equity in education that we want to see in the true ideal and promise of public education. Um, you know, in, in the NAEP scores, the uh, national assessment um, scores that came out late last year, Texas was holding its own in, in a lot of reading levels and math levels, but still falling below uh, in, in on various assessments, the national averages, the national scores. Um, in college readiness, we're still only graduating 53% of Texas high school graduates as college ready. 53% as college ready. And that's, okay. that's let me let me stop you right there. So just just so that I'm I'm sure I'm clear, you're you're saying that half the students who make these are the students who make it to graduation, the ones who aren't getting lost or dropping out along the way. So of those students who do make it to graduation, a little over half are not college and career ready based on the state standards. Just a little under half. 53% are, are graduating college ready um, with the state indicators, and there are several. Um, but but again, yeah, ju just barely over 50%. And uh, that's that's overall when we look at that disaggregated by race, ethnicity, you know, student need, uh, and, and socioeconomic background, um, all of those numbers are going to fall below that average. It's about 49% for Latino students, 35% for Black students. 35% that I want to reiterate that um, because we have a long way to go um, and 44% for economically disadvantaged students who comprise two thirds uh, of our public school student population. So, um, so yes, I mean, we, you know, we are graduating students. I, I think with the graduation rate that's often touted, there's a lot of different ways you can run that. Yes, some of the data might reflect that 90%, but IDRA has been running an attrition study for uh, over 35 years now, um, annually. And our latest study showed that 19% of ninth graders from 2017, who entered high school 2017, did not graduate four years later. And that's controlling for transferring out and moving and et cetera, 19%. Um, and, and Latino and black students were twice as likely to have experienced a push out uh, and not be graduating with their peers four years after entering ninth grade. Um, so, you, you know, we, we're still losing students. That rate has dropped over certain decades, but we are still losing students in a push out system um, in, in those final high school years. And, and there's a lot of need to, to focus on the success, their success. Yeah, it's definitely difficult to address a problem if we're not talking about its existence and the, the nuances of its existence. Uh, Governor last night noted that for student funding for public schools is, a, is at an all-time high, which I, I thought was interesting. I know the numbers that the state relies on aren't adjusted for inflation. Um, here at Every Texan, we just did a joint report with the AFT that showed that uh, Texas teacher pay is actually the same as it was a decade ago, adjusting for inflation. And this is post-pandemic when I imagine learning loss and of course record high inflation is, is creating even more challenges for schools. 
Exactly. I mean, I think if you look at that basic, what is, you know, the fixed numerical rate of how we're funding students, uh, 6,160, um, that is higher than it was. Uh, but that's accompanied by um, a series of tax cuts that and tax compression mechanisms that actually reduce the amount of funding that's going to schools for students. And still, Texas ranks about 40th for per, per pupil funding levels out of the 50, you know, 50 states in DC, 40th. Um, and again, serving 10% of the, the nation's public school students. Um, so we definitely aren't keeping up. And, and, and again, those that per pupil funding level is arbitrary, um, which as I know, every Texan has published on, it's not set or based on cost. Uh, it's not adjusted for inflation. It's not adjusted for cost of living any longer. Um, and we're incredibly geographically diverse and have a lot of different cost needs. So, um, so no, we we are not necessarily funding the the real needs to educate and serve students fully. Yeah, I just think it's the the statistic on the number of graduates that are being passed through the system without being college or career ready is such an interesting contrast with the governor's focus last night on making sure that our workforce, we have a workforce for tomorrow that we have, we're, we're uh, creating and protecting the workforce of the future. Um, when we're, we're literally pouring hundreds of thousands of students into, the, into our economy each year who aren't ready for college or career. Uh, but we, we were happy to hear the governor say he believes every Texas child deserves a quality education. So I'm glad we can all agree on that. But it sounds like we might have some different ideas on how to get there. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about vouchers this session. The governor announced it as one of his top priorities last night. Uh, he calls them education savings accounts, or sometimes you hear them referred to as ESAs. Do vouchers help deliver a quality education for every Texas child? No. Um, and, and this is based off decades of research, you know, where voucher programs have existed in, in other states um, for many years and in many iterations. Uh, and the short answer is no, the research does not back them up as an effective strategy to fund schools, to uh, improve um, school performance and student attainment. Um, and certainly not to improve public accountability and parent control over schools. And so that might be a different conversation, but to the contrary, you know, when, when students go into a private setting, they're losing their federal protections. Um, their parents are actually losing their ability to intervene and, and um, sometimes, you know, advocate for their student based on those federal protections, particularly for students with disabilities and students in bilingual education or emergent bilingual students. Um, so no, the data is not there. Education savings accounts are one type of voucher program. So when you hear ESA, when you hear education saving account, read voucher, that it, it's a type of voucher. Anything that takes public money into a private setting is a voucher program. Um, and we have this, you know, across other sectors as well, but in education, that means it's taking public education dollars out of the public system into a private setting with no fiscal reporting requirements, with no oversight, and would completely reduced parental and community uh, transparency and accountability and reduced academic accountability. You know, private schools aren't taking the STAR uh, or state assessments um, or in the A through F school rating system. We, we have a lot of different, you know, policy analyses and views over what those systems really read. But the point is um, you are losing that transparency and public accountability in those settings. Mm -hmm. That was Dr. Chloe Latham Sykes from IDRA. We also have with us today Brianna Brown, the co-executive director of the Texas Organizing Project. Brianna top organizes 
Um, it's an organization that's member-based. Can you tell um, folks a little bit about what that means and what your work looks like? Sure, uh, and thanks so much for the invitation to be here today. Uh, so at the Texas Organizing Project, uh, what we like to say is that we fight with two fists. We fight with people power and political power. Um, we, yeah, isn't it? it? It's a great kind of like reminder that we need both of those things, kind of inhaling and exhaling at the same time, right? Um, so we blend community organizing, electoral organizing. Um, both of those have people power fists. Uh, with our people power fists, you know, our folks are folks uh, who don't know through uh, an academic way uh, that the system is designed to fail. They know because they have stood in every line, bureaucratic line there is to stand in, trying to negotiate um, how to survive. Um, mm -hmm. We are uh, an organization of grandmamas and abuelitas on fixed incomes. We are formerly incarcerated reverends. We are aunties raising nieces. Mm -hmm. We're documented, we're dreamers. Mm -hmm. uh, we're black folks who defy respectability politics. Uh, and all of that, all of that people power um, it's designed to um, have huge campaigns in the counties where there is the densest concentration of Black folks and Latinos. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are anchored in Dallas County, Bear County, and Harris County, uh, mm -hmm. and these campaigns speak directly to the to the issues that we that are impact that impact us every day. So we have legal reform um, that we do under the banner of Right to Justice. Uh, we have an immigrant justice campaign. We have a healthcare justice campaign. We fight around. We fight around education. I'm about to, you know, go through just kind of the litany because, as Audrey Lord reminds us, you know, we do not live single issue lives. So a lot of these issues end up intersecting with one another. And um, the the heartbeat of our work really is about where those that intersection is. Um, uh, so that's what we do on the, you know, on the regular. It happens 24 seven. Um, I mean, the complement to that is what we do to uh, build political power. Um, but, you know, the, the organizing work, um, you know, we are definitely see ourselves as torchbearers of, of civil rights movements before us. So you're, you're really on the ground and you're, you're working with and listening to communities every day and your issues are people led. So you're, you're working on issues that are identified by the communities who are most impacted. That's true. Yeah, I mean, our we have over three hundred thousand members and supporters across the state, uh, and the issues that we're fighting for um, are issues that you know can transform just how we our everyday lives are lived. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think the the interesting thing is like whether it is healthcare justice or immigrant justice, like the heartbeat of all of our issues really is a pursuit of racial and economic justice, right? Uh, that in a real sense, these things are a way to, to hopefully get folks around an organizing table when, of course, policy that is important and changes our lives. But more and more important than that, we really are trying to reimagine how our democracy works, right? And fundamental to that is changing both like who's in power, who's in and who has say. Um, so while our issues uh you know, it's very important, for instance, that we are making sure that our jails are are decarcerated, right? It is even more important, and I heard Rochelle uh, talk about this earlier, about that we are getting to the root causes, right? And uh, not nibbling around the edges. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the real vision for our work really is anchored in this idea of like, what does racial and economic justice look like in Texas uh, and beyond? 
You know, the governor painted a very positive outlook for Texas's recovery from the pandemic. Um, how does his portrayal compare to what your organization, TOP, is seeing on the ground? You just mentioned a 300,000 member base and you're in three very large um, county seats. Um, how does that portrayal sort of compare with the, the work that you've been doing and what you've been seeing? Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, the pandemic really shone a light on uh, issues that we, I feel like the collective we organizers since the birth of this country have been fighting for, right? Um, and so whether it is about like access to healthcare or the idea that all of us deserve a dignified floor um, or um, that, you know, our jails shouldn't be over, you know, overpopulated and overcrowding, um, you know, it was interesting, the pandemic really did uh, put front and center the fights that we've been having, you know, for centuries now. Um, so I don't, it, it, there, there is a real contrast between what the picture that Governor Abbott painted and what we have been experiencing um, before the pandemic and certainly after the pandemic. Again, the pandemic, I think, shone a light on the crises that already exist, right? On not just broken systems, but system systems designed to do exactly what they're doing. Um, you know, we uh, our uh, housing justice campaign in Bear County sprouted out of the pandemic um, because we were fighting to keep people in their homes, right? What we found is that in the pandemic, there can be this idea that uh, of eviction moratoriums, um, that people need uh, dignified housing. Uh, and I mean, we did what organizers do. I mean, we had some really beautiful actions like during the pandemic, um, again, that speak directly to like our, his, that are our, our DNA as, as organizers and, and doing direct actions and stopping uh, evictions in eviction courts. Um, and that really did sprout this campaign uh, in Bear County, for instance, that uh, now is fighting for uh, a tenant bill of rights, um, which is so essential. Um, you know, in Texas, over half of the folks who live in Texas are living in uh, a rented um, in apartments. Uh, so I think that the, the, the things that happened in the pandemic, um, definitely there has been, a, there's a direct line between um, the, the work that we've been able to do um, and the work that we'll continue to do. I mean, we also, you know, there was a devastating impact um, on, uh, on incarcerated communities around COVID. You know, some of the hotbeds of where that the spread of COVID were happening were in our county jails. Um, the what we've been trying to do for you know over five years now is make sure that uh, our county jails are uh, decarcerated, um, with the fundamental belief that if just because you don't you can't afford to pay your pay for your freedom doesn't mean you need to sit in, in jail because you can't afford you know to pay your bond. Um, so those efforts, um, you know, we've been able to make a big impact on just paying people's bonds. They have led to like a direct 5% uh, reduction in, in county jail populations. Um, so, you know, the pandemic was, uh, we're still fighting, right? It's shown a light on the issues. Um, and I think it created also this kind of like Vicks vapor rub effects in the mainstream, right? That uh, folks were more open to like the solutions that uh, you know, organizing communities have been fighting for since the beginning. Um, and I think that it also helps us understand what is possible, right? Mm -hmm. It is possible for us to get direct cash uh, assistance from the government. That is a possible, that is possible. So mm -hmm. I think that it's also been, um, 
uh, helpful for us to continue to push out the edges of what we think is uh, with, what we think is possible and expand our own imaginations. The, the governor uh, did a lot of, you know, lots of praise last night for the Texas economy and how the economy is thriving and is doing really well. Um, how, you know, what are your thoughts on how working people are doing in Texas? Can you tell us about any general trends for the well-being of working families statewide? Um, well, I mean, I think that what is there, there are some like fundamental truths, right? Uh, I think one of those fundamental truths is that, you know, our communities, uh, in particular Black and Latino communities in Texas, um, are still the bearers of um, bearers of a, a condition in Texas that makes it very hard to thrive. Um, whether we're talking about, you know, access to health care, uh, Texas continues to be the most uninsured state in the country. Uh, the disproportionate number of those folks who are uninsured are Black and Latino. Um, we still don't have access to, to healthcare to keep ourselves and our families healthy. Um, when we talk about access to good paying jobs, that is still something that uh, we struggle uh, to ensure. We still don't have a minimum wage here in Texas that allows us to do anything, but in some, in some instances, it's not even just subsist, uh, but much less help us to, to thrive and, and build community. Another thing that we saw in the pandemic is that um, the service in, it, service in uh, industry jobs that uh, you know most of the folks that have those jobs in Texas and across this country are Black and Latino, mm -hmm. and those jobs uh, were on the front lines. Um, and often, you know, folks were not able to do those jobs because of exposure to COVID. Um, we know that. That that is that remains a big issue uh, across this country and especially here in Texas that we don't have access to the kind of jobs that that um, help us to uh, not just survive but really thrive. Um, we know yeah, that I our think it's, the, it's so interesting because the governor uh, was focusing on the 1.9 million jobs that have been created in Texas, and I thought it would have been really interesting to hear what the average wage was for those jobs and. Also was kind of thinking, what does that really mean when we still have almost 5 million Texans who don't have access to, to basic health insurance? And that's, a, you know, there's another peculiar stat in Texas is that just because you have a, Texas is also the state where just because you have a job doesn't mean you have health insurance. It's like the, the state that you has the most jobs without health insurance. Um, so that speaks directly to the point that you're making. Um, I mean, I think that it's in, there is a, uh, continues to be a bleakness around uh, what our current conditions are. I think I get really encouraged and, you know, at the top, we get really encouraged about what we're able to do in our cities and counties. You know, that is like the strategy, like how are we building cities and counties that are reflective of our values, that we're electing folks that share our values um, and can move policy that really does like change how we live the day to day. Um, to build to statewide power, because, you know, it is pretty topsy-turvy. If we look at what is happening at the state level and who represents us, it's different than what's happening in our counties, uh, and especially in our counties where the most Black and Latino folks live. Um, so I think there is, uh, you know, despite, like, the bleakness, I think that there, there have been 
um, real bright spots in our cities and counties about you know, what we've been able to accomplish to move really um, progressive reform. Um, that it kind of makes sense though, because it's, it's uh, you know, it's not as on the local level, uh, local government is not as slow moving as uh, statewide government. And they meet year round, not just every other year, the way our legislature does. And um, it's, it's, it kind of makes sense to have that decision-making power at the local level. So uh, uh, local electeds can kind of focus on the needs of their specific communities. And I've, uh, we've really been concerned, certainly here at Every Texan, about the rise of preemptive legislation, the rise of preemption as a strategy to prevent the local discretion of counties and cities to um, respond to the needs um, locally. So it's really interesting that at the time some of these um, wins have been happening at the local level, there's also a ramping up at the capital of, um, of preemption policies to prevent them from doing just that. Yes, I mean, the thing that we're most interested in at the state ledge this year is around, uh, you know, protecting prosecutorial discretion of, you know, district yep. attorneys. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I want to wave a little flag that says local control. Um, <laughs> it's, it's good for us all. Um, but it is, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the things, and, you know, when I was kind of describing how, like, our kind of fringe ideas about solutions to everyday issues that, that really took to the mainstream during the pandemic, it turns out that a lot of these things are really popular, right? Like it is popular to talk about like having rental assistance and making sure that people are not evicted from their homes. And, um, you know, PS in Texas, we want to have access to abortions. Um, so it, you know, what happens at the state level really is not only counter to what's happening in our cities and our states, but it's also counter to the majority of public opinion across Texas. Yeah, it's 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 been incredibly interesting and also frustrating to see that dynamic play out. That was Brianna Brown, the co-executive director at the Texas Organizing Project Top. And I'm gonna take it now over to Dick Levine. Dick, you have been focused on building state and local revenue systems that meet Texans' needs for over 30 years. Uh, so let's let's dig into this a little bit. When we talk about making investments in things like education, healthcare, um, safer communities, can can we really afford all that as a state? There's sometimes I feel like there's this setup where, you know, if you fund one thing, you gotta, you know, move um, funding or support away from another thing. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, you know, we're asking whether we can afford to make these investments for our future. And the answer is we, we can't afford not to. I mean, this is we need to take care of our children. We need to take care of our working people so that they can take care of their families and they can prosper. And especially this session, we're totally able to do it. If you heard the controller when he gave his biennial revenue estimate telling the, the legislature how much money they have available to spend, it is an unbelievably large amount. Now, partly because that, that's because of inflation that, that raised the amount of sales tax we collected, but those are dollars we have. And this is our chance to really build some, on our future and, and not the one of the emergency items that the governor mentioned last night was property tax cuts. That's just completely the wrong priority. In the proposal- 
the proposal in the the proposal in the base budget was fifteen billion dollars for uh you know the the base budget that's the one that that's been filed in the house and the senate and that the house appropriations committee and the senate finance committee are holding hearings on now and there is a section listing property tax cuts and how to go about them that totals 15 billion but if you look at it more than a third of that is already committed those are things that we, the state is going to have to pay to replace reduced property taxes caused by the school finance bill that we passed in, 19, in 2019. So if the legislature wanted to take credit for it, well, then they should, should take credit for it again. And that's more than $5 billion that's already baked in. That's plenty. And that's a lot of money that we don't have to spend by reducing property taxes that we could spend, for instance, by increasing the what's called the basic allotment, sort of the, the foundation for the school finance formulas. That would help reduce property taxes. And better than that, it would help increase the amount of money we can spend on our students and retaining our teachers. Um, it's actually, to me, kind of a no brainer. I mean, this is your chance. And we should not squander it by just frittering it away with property tax cuts. Yeah, I love I love the way you framed it. We were, um, and you know, shameless plug for our podcast <laughs> episode on the BRE. And I think it, I think in that episode you framed it as a difference between an expenditure and an investment. You know, one of these options. Um, is is simply an expenditure that frankly is going to have long-term repercussions in terms of our ability to fund community priorities in in the short term once we return to pre-pandemic revenue levels. But the other side, uh, an investment in education, for example, um, creates um, immeasurable long-term rewards for the state. Yeah, exactly. If you have property tax cuts, that's gone. You'll never get it back. Mm -hmm. If you put it instead into education, or our physical infrastructure. You know, we do have obviously problems with our grid and water and the highways. And we do have problems obviously with health and human services because we've refused to, to expand Medicaid. You put the money there, you'll get it back many times over like any investment. Mm. Um, can, you, can we talk a little bit about our tax system in Texas? Because I feel like there's this always this underlying um, you know, Texas is a tax-friendly state because we don't have a state income tax, just property taxes. Do you have any thoughts on sort of the fairness in our tax system as it relates to our ability to fund? Well, um, we'll start with what you mentioned. We don't have a state personal income tax, one of very few states that is trying to maintain a modern government without a major source of revenue that other states enjoy. One of the things is not only are we very low and, and ranked in the 40s like we are in everything else on our ability to, to support public services, but because we only have the sales tax and the property tax rather than the three major taxes most states have, we have a very high sales tax rate and we have very high property taxes. I can't say they aren't high, but they're high for a reason. It's because we're putting all the pressure on property taxes to fund not just our schools, but at the city and county level to fund our police, to fund our jails, to fund our parks, all that. So that's really the root cause. And then the uh, implication of it is because for instance, the sales tax, 
the sales tax is, uh, supplies more than half of all state tax revenue. And then there's a local sales tax that cities use and help support transit authorities in all our big cities. Well, the sales tax inherently takes more from those who can least afford it and the least from those who could most afford it. Because obviously working families have to spend what money they have just to keep their families going. While the folks with a lot of money can take care of their families and have money for savings or even spend it on services that aren't covered by the sales tax like lawyers and stockbrokers and accountants. We could in fact tax those services and even reduce the sales tax rate if we wanted to and still be better off because we'd be taxing people who could better afford to support public services and also in, including part of the economy that's the fastest growing part of the economy, the service sector. We're still running off a sales tax that was very largely designed gee, nearly 60 years ago when it was first adopted. Yeah, it's so it's it's so backwards. We rely so heavily on the sales tax, which has a it's regressive. It has a disproportionate mm -hmm. impact on low income families. But then the tax cuts that are being proposed are disproportionately going to benefit homeowners and and largely wealthy homeowners. So not only do um, poor folks have the disproportionate impact of the sales tax, they also don't benefit from this massive property tax cut. Well, in a way, it's even worse than that. The LBB budget lists a couple of ways that they could cut property taxes. And none of those really help the renters. Brianna mentioned, I guess in urban areas, 50% of people rent. I know statewide, it's more like a third. And there's no guarantee, in fact, it would be foolish to even think that if you're giving the landlord a property tax break, the landlord is generously gonna shave, save those sharings with save the, the savings with their tenants. And it just goes right in his pocket. So what we need to do, and this is something that uh, I, I would like people who know local conditions better than I do. I know there were local re rental assistance programs set up using COVID money. Well, the COVID money is going away, but if the state could see fit to help out cities and counties with their programs to help renters, then we could start talking about property tax cuts for everybody else, as long as renters get something too. Hmm. I'd love to uh, just reiterate a point that Dick is making um, that by this, you know, the state has the opportunity just massively right now um, with our surplus to be able to actually alleviate a lot of the pressures on local taxpayers by making meaningful investments more but proposals to take money out of the system, property tax cuts that are built, compounding themselves on previously built-in property tax cuts, um, a voucher programs that take money out of the public system, all of these actually make it more expensive for local taxpayers to live and go to school and work in Texas. They are you know, touted as, as a tax alleviation, but really they make it much more expensive and place a much greater burden on our local taxpayers in Texas. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're pulling the rug out from underneath our own feet uh, when, we, when we think about it, um, using the surplus this way. Um, well, um, to all of our, to everyone who joined mm -hmm. us today, uh, we have Brianna Brown, co-executive director from TOP, Rochelle Garza, the executive director of Texas Civil Rights Project, Dr. Chloe Latham Sykes from IDRA, and Dick Levine, senior fiscal analyst at Every Texan. 
Um, so honored, so honored, all of you to do this work alongside of you in, in different ways across the state. Uh, just very grateful for the work you do and uh, thank you for joining us today. And that wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks to our guests. And as always, check out everytexan.org for more information about our work and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.